6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 1, through 8, verse 14. Well, I want to welcome you to session 3 of our review of the Song of Songs. And of course, whenever we enter the Word of God, we always want to do it with the accompaniment, the leading of supervision of the Holy Spirit. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We commit this hour and ourselves into your hands that we each might become more effective stewards of the opportunities that you put before us. So we commit ourselves and this hour into your hands in the name of our bridegroom, our shepherd king, our redeemer, Yeshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, indeed. Amen. Okay, so we are in the third session. At the last time we finished, we were at the, at the peak, which is the first verse of chapter 5, the climax of the, the uh, marital union, where uh, the bridegroom says, I have come into my garden, my sister bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O oh friends, and drink, yea, drink abundantly, O oh beloved. All that was to highlight the peak of his full enjoyment and satisfaction. So we have this strange refrain at the end. Eat, O oh friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O oh beloved. It's pronouncing a sanction on the proceedings at that point. So the applications from the previous section, you may recall, was the importance of verbalizing was reemphasized, the importance of foreplay as a prelude to the total enjoyment of the union, the importance of virginity were all issues last time. But remember, too, as we deal with those issues, the comprehensiveness of his cleansing. So let's not get on a guilt trip aspect of that. Jesus... Fortunately, his blood avails for all. The mutual obligations of our, that are, of our bodies belonging to each other, we highlighted last time. So spiritually, he loves us individually and radically. But let's not forget it's a courtship. It's a continuing courtship. And we'll talk more about that in the next session we get into. But here we are, and last time we finished the whole first part of the book the first three idols. And we're now moving into the second part of the book, and we're going to wrap it up, hopefully, in this session with two idols, the fourth idol, um, and the, um, which consists of a couple of reflections, and the fifth idol, which has four reflections in it. So we, we actually have worked our way through the first seven reflections. The eighth was this troubled dream love refused, and we want to get into that here. The fourth idol, sexual problem reflections. The eighth reflection is this one about this troubled dream, refused. We're going to get into that here in chapter 5. 
somewhat similar to a troubled dream she had earlier. But let's get into this. It says, verse 2. She says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew, and my locks with drops of the night. What you may not pick up here is, dew is at midnight. He is coming home late, is really the issue here. And uh, she's trying to sleep, but her heart wakes. The voice of my beloved knocketh, saying, Open to me. He is coming home late, and she's miffed about it. That's the net of it all. So that, that, uh, I want to make that clear. It's not obvious if you try to absorb the passage. But he is, he is uh, coming in after midnight, which was unexpected. Sleep, but my heart worketh. See, she's dreaming this whole thing, apparently. But a troubling dream in which her lover seeks admittance to her, but he's home late. So she's not too excited about the fact that he's that late. And uh, so the word love here, by the way, is raya, which singles her out as one freely chosen by him for intimate relationship. That's a complimentary term, obviously. But his head and hair were covered with dew because he's been outside. Dew in Israel is often very heavy, especially after midnight. That's the flavor of what we're witnessing here. But there's some bad timing here. He's late, and she's upset about it. So she refuses with an excuse in the next verse. And she's withholding. Uh, see, one ho- withholding oneself from one's mate is not scriptural. Again, now we call your attention to 1 Corinthians 7. The first five verses gets into all of that. So the fact that the lover no longer addressed her as my bride suggests that there's a time lapse between verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1 was last in last time session. Verse 2 starting this new part, and it's apparently there's a time lapse between those two verses. These chapter and verse splits are not that useful in this particular book. The couple, in other words, can no longer be regarded as newlyweds. He did address her by other affectionate terms. My sister, five times he's called her a sister, because in the ancient Near East, sister was an affectionate term for one's wife. Also called her my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Those are strong terms. This is the first record of his using all of these terms of endearment. He's used individually some before. This is the first time he's using them all together. So, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? She's highlighting some rather trivial excuses for not opening the door. See, it all appears very inconvenient. Now, remember, this is all a dream, so it has a little, uh, that aspect to it. She said in a dream that she had already gotten ready for bed. What do you want me to do? Get up and open the door? See? But this trivial excuse for not opening the door revealed her indifference or apathy toward her husband. Bad news. Bad scene. Inappropriate. Somehow, she had grown cool toward his advances. But he did not accept her excuse. He tried to open the door, but failed and then left. Okay? Love is very sensitive. Remember, we're always in a courtship. And when you think about our bridegroom, have you responded to him? Are you guilty also of the sin of lethargy? Let's move on here. She says, My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. See, reaching through the opening, attempting to gain entrance. She has begun to respond, but too late. Then her compassion was aroused for him, 
and she decided to open the door. Timing was important. My beloved put his hand through the hole and so forth. The Hebrew expression translated, my heart began to pound for him, is used elsewhere to express pity or compassion. Isaiah 16, Jeremiah 31, some other places. It may not necessarily imply sexual arousal, as some scholars have maintained. Some commentators see it that way, some don't. And that isn't necessarily the thing here. She says, I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with the sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. So, see, for practical purpose, she, she may as well not have been home. When the beloved in her dream went to the door to open it for her husband, my lover used of him six times in, in, in these verses, she found myrrh on the door handles and got some on her hands. Myrrh was sometimes associated with lovemaking, so that's the flavor there. That's why some commentators think that was part of the issue here. This may refer to the custom of the lover placing perfumed ointment on the bolt of the door when he comes and when she's not in. Perhaps the, just like leaving a business card, sort of. Uh, perhaps the lover had put liquid myrrh on the door handles as a token of affection for his beloved. He had wanted more than relief from the discomfort of the night air. He, this is why some commentators think that that was the sexual um, uh, expectation was part of the, the drama here. She says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave, no, gave me no answer. So he seems to have departed. He came there, wanted in. She didn't open the door. By the time she changed her mind and got to the door, he was gone. She missed her chance, you see. And so it uh, reminds me of what <laughs> Jesus said at Gethsemane. What? Could ye not watch? with me one hour. So she runs to the streets to search for him. And uh, you know, Jean Goyen um, uses this passage to comment on the dark night of the soul, her famous writings about that. She was imprisoned in the Bastille for her commentary on the Song of Songs. Many people don't know that. And uh, so uh, this, this, that, that whole topic is dealt with in uh, Faith of the Night Seasons, by my wife's book on that. Moving on. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me and they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. Wow, that's a different result than the previous time. When she set out to look for him, she was found and beaten by the city watchman. In her first dream, the watchman helped her look for her lover. Again, this is a dream again, remember that. This time they mistook her for a prostitute. She loses her upper garment in her escape. She suffers the trauma of losing her position of her bridegroom's protection. So she's got exposure here that's critical. So she turns to the daughters of Jerusalem, to the social milieu. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. Again, the daughters of Jerusalem are this kind of chorus that I mentioned before. And... Uh, so waking from this troubled dream, she implores their aid in finding him. And their response is, why, why, What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? In other words, what makes him so special? Why is he more to you than any other? And this phrase, O fairest among women, could be sarcastic in offense. 
Are you so self-centered that you fail to appreciate the uniqueness of your spouse? Is sort of the flavor of the retort here from the, from the society there. She responds with the next, um, uh, what, seven verses. My beloved is white and ruddy and the chiefest among 10,000. He's white meaning dazzling and stunning. Ruddy, that is masculine, manly, macho. He's, all, he's a dream guy here. He's chiefest among 10,000. Have you ever noticed how some women berate their husband, among others? Never, 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 never do that. Never do that. You never speak negatively, especially in public. If there's some concern, keep it private. Publicly, you should be his primary cheering session. You should be his primary press agent. It's amazing how some women berate their husband, and then they're surprised when they learn of a subsequent affair with someone who made them feel special. That doesn't justify it, but at least makes it understandable. Tragic, tragic. They sow the, their own seeds of destruction. He, she goes on, His head is, is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as raven. Gold in value, not in color. It doesn't mean he's blonde. It's gold in the sense of being valuable. Raven is uh, often used in Scripture to remind us of God's provision, being fed by the ravens and so forth in Job and 1 Kings 17. His eyes were as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. Again, doves suggest fidelity, faithful for life. They were also acceptable in the Old Testament for sacrifice. So they're a cherished thing. By the way, didn't your wedding vows include an everlasting commitment of loyalty and fidelity until death? It's an issue. God expects us to keep our vows. He, she continues, his cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. <laughs> How do you taste to your wife, is the question I ask of the guys. She continues, his hands are as rods of gold set with beryl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. <laughs> I don't think we would normally describe our abs that way, right? That's some fitness club uh, he must belong to. Them are some abs, as somebody might say, okay? The rods here are from root, meaning, meaning a circle. They really refer to fingers for caressing as well as for providing. Very important. And ivory was usually carved, by the way. So when it says... Uh, bright ivory overlaid. Their, uh, ivory was normally carved, telling a story. <laughs> Guys, what does your belly tell? Any stories there? Anyway, moving on. Dillich, one of the most uh, uh, classic commentators, uh, f feels that the, the, the expression here, bright ivory overlaid with sapphires, implies his ab he had his veins visible in a, in a, in a, in a complementary sense. But moving on. His legs are as pillars of marble, set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance as is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. Cedars of Lebanon, of course, are legendary. His legs are like pillar, pillars of dignity and strength is the idea here. And uh, something else you should understand, the word Lebanon today means something quite different than it did classically. It wasn't that long ago that Lebanon was known as the Paris of the Middle East. It was a beautiful, lovely, highly coveted city. It was as desirable in the Middle East as Paris is typically today to the traveler. 
And uh, it was legendary in its beauty, in other words. It wasn't until the Muslims took over that it became uh, looking like a war zone that we associated today. So moving on. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So that's her little um, description of her husband. He is, his mouth is most sweet. Is your mouth sweet? What is your communication with her, your wife's, like? Is it sweet? Here it's altogether lovely. Lovely is in the plural, by the way. It intensifies what she's saying. Beloved indeed, in other words. And friend. You know, that's interesting. Are you her friend? Your husband, but are you her friend? Can she share everything with you without being judged or attacked? That's a good question. Crucial. The answer should be in the affirmative. But is it? Or do you take her for granted? That was my guilt. For a good part of those 50 years you've been married, I took my bride for, for granted for too many years. And that's crucial. That's tragic. Despite their apparent marital problems, she refrains from criticizing him here. Interesting. Important. She never criticized him. There may be cause for that. That's in private between the two of them. Not out in public. Not to the daughters of Jerusalem. And uh, see, she's still catching those little foxes, even here. Well, the dream comes to an end. Uh, that's in chapter 6, verse 2. He has returned by then, okay? So we're in chapter 6, verse 1. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? So they apparently uh, are swayed by her description. They're prepared to help. We're convinced. We'll seek him also, they say. That's the flavor of the chorus here. So you get to verse 2. My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. So the dream is now over and he has returned. So we're shifting here. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's Hebrews 13.5. So she has this declaration that occurs frequently three times in this whole piece. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. See, three times we have this declaration, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. The first time was chapter 2, verse 16, which in effect raises the question, have you given yourself to him? In chapter 6, verse 3, here, it's confirmed, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. We're going to run into it again in chapter 7, verse 10, where every doubt is gone. But again, it's that same refrain, uh, refrain uh, in the context of the passage at the time. Something else I want to point out about this verse here, in chapter, verse 3 of chapter 6. It turns out in the Hebrew, it's an acrostic. In the Hebrew, the first four words form an acrostic. Um, uh, when an acrostic is, it's like uh, NASA for the National Aeronautic Space Administration. NASA is an acrostic. Um, uh, radar, radar detection and ranging. There are words that sometimes you take the first letter of a group of words and it becomes an acrostic. That's what's happening here. It's an acrostic in Ulul, which is the sixth Jewish month, which corresponds in our calendar typically to August or September. It's the month of preparation for the fall feasts. Of the Jewish calendar, the fall feasts are the climax of the religious year. They're the beginning of the civil year. The first of Tishri is Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the civil year. But it, 
On the religious year, it's the Feast of Trumpets, followed in 10 days by Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the most solemn day of the year. And five days later, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. So those three fall feasts are very critical in the Jewish calendar. Okay. So we have the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Feast of Tabernacles, which in addition to commemorating history, they also are prophetic. All seven Feasts of Moses are. The first three, uh, are they start with Passover in the spring, with the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. And they all are commemorative of history, but they're also prophetic of the first coming of Christ. And because Passover, he is the Passover lamb. John the Baptist introduces him that way. And uh, with a Jewish title, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's a Passover label when he first introduces him publicly. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, is, is what's celebrated. That also embraces a Feast of first fruits, which is the morning after Shabbat, after Passover. In other words, a Sunday morning. And that celebrates the resurrection. That's all. And so, so they're prophetic. The last three feasts are prophetic of the second coming. Between those is a very strange one called, called the Feast of Shavuot or Feast of Pentecost, which is the day that the church was born. And some sus suspect it might be the day of the rapture because we discover apparently that, um, that uh, Enoch was translated on his birthday and Enoch was removed from the world before the judgment of the of Noah's flood, and there's a whole study I encourage you to get into on all of that. So the thing I want you to be aware of, that the Jews' catechism is this calendar. You really want, even a Christian, you want to really understand the Jewish calendar because it's rich in meaning and, and, uh, and so forth. But let's, uh, here we'll move on. We're going to go into the fourth idol, the sexual problem reflections, and we've just seen the, the, the eighth one. We're going to move on to the ninth one now, the return of Solomon having come after that that troubled dream that uh, Shulamite has just described. Verse 4, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Tizra, uh, Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. In the reconciliation, the first words of the lover to his beloved were words of praise. These are, these are positive things, okay? The, the name Terza means delightful. O my love, as you're delightful, as uh, comely as Jerusalem, and so forth. And... Uh, it's a lovely oasis which later became the royal residence of four different kings of the northern kingdom. Basha, Elah, Zimri, and Omri had their royal residence at Terza. So they, that's a positive term as a lovely oasis and so on. The beloved was also as lovely as Jerusalem, called the perfection of beauty. That's, that's, that's the way Jerusalem is regarded in the literature. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? And, of course, that's a, a, a quote from Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 15. The perfection of beauty. That's the, 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 the label, the equivalent of, of Jerusalem, in effect. Psalm 48, first two verses. Great is the Lord, and greatly be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. We sing that as a song often, don't we? And uh, it's uh, the, the, on the sides of the north. Now, this is a mystery here uh, that is yet to be resolved. Something is very special about the sides of the north because that's what Satan aspires to in Isaiah 14. And Golgotha was on the north side of the city. I think there's more to be unraveled here allegorically, which is really a topic for another time. Let's move on here, the sides of the north. 
Strange term. Moving on. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. In other words, he uh, is totally vanquished. His, his, the beloved's beauty was so awesome that it unnerved him as if he faced an army with banners, is the idea. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Here again, we have this flock of goats thing as a positive thing. It may strike us as strange, but that's the idiom. His eyes were so stunningly beautiful that they overwhelmed them. And in the Hebrew verb uh, usage here, to press overpoweringly against one, to infuse terror. The hephil stem means that the use of the verb is to empower somebody else to get something happening. So, so press overpoweringly against one, to infuse uh, terror. By repeating part of the phrase that he had given to her on the wedding night back there in chapter 4, He's indirectly telling her that his love for her had not diminished since that first night. It is not based on performance. His love was unconditional, is the undertone here. Very, very fundamental. And goats again. In, in Israel, the Syrian goats are mostly black, silken hair, as I mentioned before. And uh, so there, this is, this is a, a positive uh, uh, word image here he's using. It's not to our ears, perhaps. It was to them then. And of course, the hair is the one's glory, uh, glory going on. And he continues this, this rundown. The teeth are like a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one of them beareth twins, and there's not one barren among them. And again, his, the, uh, he's, he's speaking positively of her with idioms he's used before. And for the meaning of all these metaphors and her hair and so forth, you can go back uh, to chapter 4, first three verses, which are parallel here to these verses in chapter 6. And, of course, Paul alluded to the long-haired woman in the New Testament in a, in a similar way here. And, of course, sheep washed and shorn and white, matched, non-missing, pearls. These are all idioms he used earlier. And so those are repeats in a sense. As a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. And, again, we went through the pomegranates before, and they're, they're a common idiom in the Scripture. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.